there are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. We have two guests today. Our first guest is Michaela Rubenfeld. Michaela spent half her life traveling between the United States and China. She's pursuing a Master of Science in Foreign Service at Georgetown University with a concentration in science, technology, and international affairs. After finishing her studies, she aspires to serve with the State Department to forge strong relations with other countries and ensure a safe future for future generations to come. And later, we'll be joined by Commander, Command Sergeant Major Andreas Williams. Michaela and Andreas are both recipients of Soldier Strong Scholarships as they continue their education. Michaela Rubenfeld, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hey, Chris. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to being on the podcast. No, likewise. Thanks for your time. And I'd be doing a disservice to my beloved alumni. You know, we had this issue before, Georgetown, Syracuse. Just want to get that out there. You're, you're still a nice person, even though you're Georgetown, but let's leave it at that. We won't talk basketball today. That's all right. <laughs> That's all right with me. All right. Well, again, thanks for being with us today. You know, I said in the open that you spent half your life traveling between the United States and China. What led you to dividing your time between these two countries? Yeah, Chris. So I had a pretty diverse upbringing growing up and traveling between my hometown in New York City and then Shenzhen, China. I moved there in 2004 with my father, who is an optometrist, but he's also an international businessman. And in 2004, China, uh, Shenzhen, Southeast China specifically started opening up into a free economic zone. So my father uh, opened a manufacturer of optic lenses. And so I lived there for a couple of years. My stepmother is also Chinese from Sichuan province, which is in the west coast of China. And my little sister is about to be 16 years old and she's half Chinese. My biological mother is half Korean. So I have a lot of uh, Asian culture in my history and background. So it's safe to say that it has become a large part of my childhood and my uh, professional growth. So to that point, you've had a very rare and in-depth view of China that few Americans have had, or certainly will ever have. Meanwhile, having lived in China, you've looked at the United States through a different lens than people who have lived here all their lives. Compare and contrast the two countries, please. Yeah, so when I was younger, and like I said, I moved to Shenzhen in 2004, there was only one skyscraper. And Shenzhen is in mainland China across the Hong Kong Harbor from Hong Kong. So uh, because it was still relatively new, uh, there was a very small expat community. I, um, when I first moved there, actually, I would often get stopped in the streets and I would have local Chinese people take pictures with me because it was very brand new. What I thought, uh, what I think really um, uh, characterizes China is that how quickly and how rapidly it grew in the past two decades. So Shenzhen is a hot point of conversation because it went from one skyscraper to a whole skyline within a few years. And witnessing that growth firsthand uh, really, uh, was surprising. And I think that what it signified to the international community was that uh, China's integration into global affairs was going to bring a promise to everyone, including the local Chinese population, and be a uh, win-win situation for everyone. Just touching back at the beginning of that, you mentioned how people would take their picture with you. And I'm asking for a reason. How how did that make you feel? Um, My wife and I went to Egypt for part of our honeymoon. You know, we're both Caucasian. I'm 6'3", 210. She's got blonde hair. And the same thing, people would stop to have their picture taken with us. And I remember one time this mother had a picture, asked for a picture, and she had her, I don't know, maybe her seven-year-old son. The kid was in front of me. He looked up and he looked terrified of me like I was the devil or the boogeyman. And so it was just a, a weird concept to do that. How did you feel when that happened? I was 10 years old at the time. And I didn't think anything of it. I, I felt so welcomed in uh, Shenzhen by everyone. And um, contrary to what we see in the news today, uh, mind you, there's a lot of difference, a lot of growth, a lot of uh, change that China has underwent. It was under a different uh, premier at the time or prime minister. It was Hu Jintao. And he was there until 2012. Now we have Xi Jinping. But 
at the time, it was just very open and welcoming. And I actually was bullied as a child in New York City. Not that it really bothered me because I was always just that pariah. I always did my own thing. But coming from that kind of environment and going to China where I would get swarmed and circulated by Chinese kids at the pool, it was a really nice change of pace. What's your assessment of the technology race between the United States and China? You know, where are we ahead? Where are we behind? And what keeps you awake at night as you think about the future? Yeah, so it's interesting. In my program at Georgetown, I'm concentrating on science, technology, and international affairs. And I'm currently taking a science policy matters class that tackles this very issue. We are concerned about the emerging technology race between the two countries. I think that there are two sides to a coin. I always think that competition, healthy competition, is imperative for a free market to grow and develop. At the same time, a lot of people are concerned uh, because a lot of uh, policymakers in D.C. are worried that we don't have enough uh, government-initiated kind of um, inspiration for private sector innovation in emerging tech, whereas China's centrally planned economy kind of gives that, that more flexibility of working with their private sector. So I see that where this can go... Uh, where this can cause concern for the United States versus China. But I know that a lot of people now in D.C. are looking at developing task forces on specific issues of AI, uh, quantum computing, computing. So, you know, it really depends on what we do uh, in the next few years and how we really want to shape our future. And what did or do you like most about China? And what do you think would, would most surprise the average American about that country? So this is what I love about China, and this is also what would surprise people about China. Uh, China has a lot of diversity in languages, cuisines, environments, even local cultures. Although the Chinese government holds that China has a 90% Han ethnic Chinese majority, there are 55 additional ethnic minorities that are officially recognized in China. And people forget that China has a lengthy, very uh, flourishing ancient history and has underwent two rules under foreign or ethnic minority powers, such as the Mongols in the Yuan dynasty and their latest dynasty, the Qing dynasty by the Manchurians. So in addition to that, China also has tons of Chinese dialects, some of which differentiate from each other as much as English to Italian. So there's a lot. And what concerns you most about the current relationship between the United States and China? I'm more concerned or most concerned about increased polarization between the U.S. and China, especially unnecessary animosity between civilians. For example, with increased anti-Asian hate that occurred during COVID is unwarranted. All of my Asian family and friends suffered equally, if not more, during the pandemic. And I just think that it's just not right to like pit whole groups against each other in that regard. However, on a positive note regarding U.S. Gov US China government relations, although I'm worried about increased polarization between the two countries, I have to say that I 100% do not believe that a World War III is going to happen uh, between two nuclear powers. China and the U.S. are not going to push each other into corners where they're going to have to fight fight for life or death. It's just not going to happen, especially with the notion of mutually assured destruction. So I think that because of the nuclear, uh, I think that it's a gift and a curse to have nuclear weapons because it makes people, the U.S., China, the international community, hyper-conscious in ensuring that nothing goes that far. And this isn't something we talked about, um, but given your field of study right now, given your military service, given your personal background, you know, how do you feel the current war between Russia and Ukraine could affect, if at all, the U.S.-China relationship? Just your personal opinion. So I think that, um, I think that China is sitting back. I think they're, they're smart. They're not going to jump on the bandwagon. They haven't. They have sat out on uh, any of the charges that we've put on, on Russia and the international community. You know, the, the main cause of concern is that uh, China is closely watching this scenario because you know, the U.S.-China-Taiwan uh, uh, China, Taiwan strait relations 
are some kind of like equivalent to what we were seeing in Russia and Ukraine. But I don't see how this is going to affect anything. China is very strategic. They're not going to jump on this just because of taking sides. They're going to sit back and and when you call a spade a spade, when someone does something illegal in the international community, it's, it's hard to deny that that is the case. Fair assessment. I appreciate that. Thank you. And one other thing we didn't talk about, but I've had several conversations over the last couple of years through COVID on this, you know, Obviously, the Black Lives Matter movement started with George Floyd at the very beginning of COVID. And then you just mentioned a few minutes ago the, the anti-Asian hate crimes. You know, COVID's been shitty for everybody, you know, and, and we've gone through this together. And to have situations like that not only occur, but occur repeatedly, what can we do as just global citizens to start reducing, I'll, I'll call it just the hate in general, whether it be ethnic, whether it be race, creed, color, anything, you know, just again, your personal opinion, what can we do? someone who's, you know, a young graduate student here, how can we make the world a better place? I, I think that we need to realize there's humanity behind everything. And it's not this or that. It's not right versus left when it comes to these kind of issues, especially with the Black community. I'm very independent on this. I'm very practical. If it's something that's affecting, there's imbalance in one community over another, I, I think that it's safe to say that we are supposed to dissect all of the issues, whether they're structural, whether it's history, whether it's negligence on intentional or not on other parts of the system that are causing these discrepancies. I also think that we need to be able to critically analyze all of these different moving parts because it's not so simple. And I, I, I totally disagree with the mainstream media that they oversimplify oversimplify things and we have to remember that media the media is a is a corporation and so they're going to put out inflammatory content no one wants to hear about the nice things that happen every day everyone wants to hear about the bad things but the problem is it triggers a lot of emotional responses for better for worse everyone has issues and they have bad experiences and then it invokes that again so i really think that we all need to come together and stop being polarized by all of this ridiculousness, because at the end of the day, no one wants to see someone else hurt or affected by injustices, period. No one. Well said. Thank you for that. And I love two points you made in there. First of all, it's your DNA. You mentioned critically analyze. Uh, yeah. so, so I love that, but I totally agree with that. And then before the show, you were mentioning how you look back at some of our previous episodes and you said, Chris, you actually have real content on like, you know, mainstream media. And you just hit the nail on the head, mainstream media, they're, they're corporations. They've got shareholders. They've got left or right in terms of their viewership. And again, to your point, they're looking for the negative and the bad of the day to, to increase that viewership as opposed to reporting actual news. Yes. And to be honest, uh, if it's CNN or Fox, it, because everything is so extreme in the news, I'm glad that they're both there because you have two extremes or like different extremes that are balancing each other out. But I like the I like the internet and uh, watching content like yours and other content and picking and choosing to hear from people who don't have uh, stakes in you know uh, getting views or finance or financial gain. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. All right, back on track here to our conversation. I took you off off the mm -hmm. path here. You've been in the Air Force Reserves for three years and plan on continuing to serve in the future. First. I want to thank you for your service. Second, what is it about the Air Force Reserves that caused you to choose that branch as a way to serve our country? Thank you, Chris. I also want to thank you for yours, for what you're doing for us and the greater veteran community and for our country. Thank you. Um, so I enlisted in the Air Force Reserves a year after graduating from college because I always respected the uniformed services and really wanted to jumpstart my career in public service. I was at the time working in import-export operations, and I was about to be stationed in our Shanghai office, making over six figures. And I, it was like the fork and the two paths, and I decided to jump ship and go for what I truly believed in. The Air Force Reserves provide me with the opportunity to get my feet wet in intelligence and in national security. Uh, so I figured that would be a good uh, starting point for that. And 
afterwards, all of the opportunities in DC opened up. So I really appreciate that. Awesome. And right on cue, as I mentioned before, my dog is barking as the mailman is here. So hopefully that's not too much background noise. You serve as an all source analyst. And I'm familiar with a lot of military occupational specialists, but never recall hearing that one. What does an all source analyst do? Yeah, so an all-source analyst is basically an intelligence analyst that uses a wide range of sources to synthesize comprehensive intelligence products. So, for example, I could use signals intelligence, space intelligence, or geospatial intelligence, which also ties into space and satellites. And then I could couple all of that information with human-derived intelligence, so think like your 007s, to gain substantial knowledge on a specific topic to present my findings to high-level officials. We're also known as like the jack of all trades, master of none, and I figured this would be a perfect way to start my career since I was totally in the dark about everything. So I really enjoy it. There's so much talk about the right job market right now. It makes me wonder, with so many job opportunities out there, if young people aren't giving much consideration to careers in the military. Paraphrase the old car commercial when we talk about today's military branches, This isn't your father's army or air force or Navy Marines. Would you make the case for just that in terms of considering a career in the military? 100%. Look, I, I enlisted after college and if I could go back, I would have enlisted in the reserves or guard before going to college. First of all, I think that it just, uh, the military training instills a lot of bearing responsibility. It instilled in me a lot of characteristics that I feel would have carried out very well in college. Second, A lot of uh, states, if not all, provide full tuition assistance for state colleges. So I would have really benefited from that at the time. Another thing to note is that uh, during the pandemic, I spoke to a lot of my colleagues who are reservists as well, and everyone was worried about the economy plummeting and losing jobs. Luckily for us, we were all all able to get on full-time active duty orders during that time. So it's a really nice cushion to fall back on. And you're always working on very important missions too. During your time at Georgetown, your concentration has been on emerging technology and focusing on ethical applications of blockchain technology in an increasingly digitized society. And that's a mouthful. For non-techies in the audience, explain what that means and why that's important. Yeah, so blockchain technology has been coined Internet 2.0 by the greater community. It's still in its very infant stages of development. So we're being very careful in Georgetown in the Department of Computer Science, and we're working on it and trying to ensure that everything goes smooth smoothly as it gets adopted into mainstream society. Now, so what I worked on specifically was digital identity. And I have a really good analogy that my professor mentioned or my, my professor used. When we go to a liquor store and we have our ID and we present it to the cashier, all he needs is our photo and our birthday. He doesn't need to know our hair color, our eye color. He doesn't need to know where we live. So imagine you black that out and he only sees what he needs to see. Now you take it, you put it back in your pocket and you leave. He doesn't still have access to the information. That's basically the same thing that we want to do with digital identity is that you can create your identity from a trusted uh, third party or trusted authority, and then you use it to sign up for online services, and then you pull back your credentials when you're not using those services anymore, so they can't sell all your data. You don't have to give them everything, like your your blood type and everything when you're signing up for these services. So that's the same concept. We've mentioned you're pursuing your Master of Science in Foreign Service at Georgetown but your concentration is in science, technology, and international affairs. There's been a greater awareness of the need for more women in the STEM field, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. From a gender perspective, are your science technology courses fairly balanced? Yes, I was surprised to see that there is a perfect balance of men and women in my classes. I think that our program is perfect for bridging the gap um, for people who don't have STEM undergrad degrees And we also have a lot of autonomy in creating our own curriculum. So I have a lot of uh, STEM courses in my curriculum, as well as foreign service courses and language courses. I think that the greatest 
part of this is that it is a master of science in foreign service and it has opened up a lot of doors for me in STEM related fields. For example, I received the internship offer with SAIC, which is a large government contractor for space engineering an internship com uh, offer for cybersecurity engineering. And then, and then I was uh, invited by the National Reconnaissance Office, which is the space intelligence agency in the government to apply for general engineering positions. They're actually willing to train people who have some kind of STEM knowledge to train them into full-blown engineers. So we're seeing a lot of transition or transformation in the job market in general, but Georgetown absolutely has opened up everything for me. And well-deserved. And what are your thoughts, you know, do we need to get more women involved in science and technology? Yeah, so this is a complicated issue. I think that in STEM, women tend to lean more towards biological biological and life sciences, and men gravitate towards uh, computer science and engineering. Specifically in the United States, I think this is from a preference standpoint, just different preferences. Um, but what I can say is that to tackle this issue from a sociocultural uh, place, I really do uh, think that we should dismantle our very narrow focused uh, institutions and give more autonomy to individuals to choose what kind of courses they want to take and devise their own curriculums. One of the reasons why I think this should happen is that one of the huge largest deterrents of me uh, pursuing computer science in undergrad, it was such a strict schedule and I didn't want to spend all my time coding. And, well, and maybe I would say comfortably that over half the people who graduate from that program aren't experts at, in the field. And then a lot of people with computer science degrees don't even do coding most of their time. You can go into managerial positions. You just need to speak some tech lingo. So if we gave people the opportunity to take STEM-based courses and we started to look at people with those requirements that, hey, can you speak techie? And also, can you tie this into this? I think you would see a lot more uh, participation, not only from females, but I think underrepresented minorities. And you would have more diversity in perspectives for that. So after you complete your studies, you aspire to serve in the State Department to forge strong relations with other countries. After all your personal experience and studies, does that mean you're going to be focused specifically on China or do you have other countries or regions of the world that are calling you? Yes, I would love to serve in the State Department as a Foreign Service Officer, but I'm also open to other uh, civilian officer positions within the intelligence community or the greater federal government. China is close to home because that's my childhood, my history, my background knowledge. I am I love traveling and I love the world and I love learning different languages and cultures and I love history. So. I'm very open to going anywhere. And I know that's fully loaded. It's like, be careful what you wish for. No, I would, whatever comes my way, I will accept it and I will learn and then I will grow from it. I just love learning. So anywhere. <laughs> overseas though, I want to go overseas. I want to experience things. Terrific. We have just a few minutes left. What advice do you have for young women who are thinking about a career in either the military, foreign service, or the intelligence field? Do it. It's really a meaningful career and the opportunities are endless. Especially in intelligence, you can translate those skills into so many private sector jobs, ones that work with the government or ones in consulting or whatever you want. It's always great to have that background experience and to also work for the international community and for humanity's future. And I would say that we have so many incredible women in high level positions who shatter gender barriers in our government now. But if you are going into a field that doesn't have a lot of women, I would tell you that you should not let that stop you. I think that is important. And this is some uh, ethos that I carry that I want to become the leader or mentor that I always wanted. And it's very empowering to think like that because one day I'm going to have a female under me and I can tell her the exact same thing so that she doesn't feel that she can't go into male-dominated industries as well. Fantastic. We've been talking to Michaela Rubenfeld. Michaela, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Chris. And best of luck in your endeavors. Look forward to seeing what happens uh, once you get the graduate degree from Georgetown. We'll be back after the break with our second guest, Command Sergeant Major Andreas Williams. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our listeners have told us that they want to be motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement around the clock. And we've responded to you. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's here at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You can like and comment on the Voice America Empowerment Channel Facebook page. This is the place to get and share advice from some of the best leaders on the planet. Get started today by searching for Voice America Empowerment or click the like button under the player today. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we are back with our second guest in this week's installment of Next Steps Forward. Command Sergeant Major Andreas Williams was appointed Senior Enlisted Leader for the Camp Roberts Garrison Training Center in California in October of 2020. In this role, he's advisor on all enlisted matters affecting training, utilization, health of the force, and enlisted professional development. A native of St. Louis, Missouri, Command Sergeant Major Williams served five years on active duty prior to joining the California National Guard. His combat and stateside tours of duty include Operation Uphold Democracy, Operation Noble Eagle, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Hurricane Katrina, Operation Jumpstart, which was a border mission, Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, as well as multiple wildfires and floods in support of FEMA Region 9, Homeland Response Force, and defense support to civil authorities throughout the United States. His awards are too numerous to mention in the remaining 25 minutes we have left, but I will point out one in particular. He is a recipient of the Order of Mayor Chausse Award, which is one of the highest honors bestowed upon a military policeman. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Criminology and Criminal Justice, magna cum laude, from Arizona State University, a Master's in Leadership and Community Engagement from the University of Texas at El Paso, and most importantly, he is one of my classmates pursuing his doctorate degree in Organizational Change Leadership at the University of Southern California. Command Sergeant Major Andreas Williams, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hey, thank you for having me, Chris. Um, appreciate you reading the bio. I didn't realize I'd done so much in my short 30-year career, but I'm happy to be here, and I uh, thank you again. Well, I think the intro took about 10 minutes to read, so I'm not sure how much time <laughs> we have left. We'll check with the producer. Uh, but, you know, of course, congratulations on all your, your terrific accomplishments. I know there are many more. So let's start with you've made a career of military service. Uh-huh. First off, thank you for your service. Thank and second... Why did you choose to join the Army, and what convinced you to stay to make it the extraordinary career that you've had? Uh, thank you for asking, Chris, and I appreciate you uh, recognizing my service. Um, as a young boy growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, a lot of my uncles, uh, people in, within the community, I used, uh, went off to the uh, Army. I used to always see them in their uniform. They always looked very polished. Uh, I was uh, impressed by the discipline, and uh, which really attracted me to the military. Um, using between the ages of 10 to 16, you start developing your human development, and that kind of decides on what direction you're going to go in life. And uh, at that point, that's where I really started developing that military is going to be a career for me, specifically the, uh, the Army. Um, I know I have an extraordinary uh, career within, within that. Within my first 10 years of the military, I was really just trying to find my way wondering if it was for me, if I had an imposter syndrome, do I belong within the uh, Army? Um, at my 10-year mark, 9-11 uh, happened. Um, I received orders to be deployed in support of Operation North Eagle, where I went out to uh, Washington to help uh, support that, that mission. And at that point, I made leadership a choice. I took on a mentor who kind of helped develop me. 
And I knew if I was going to be here, um, I had to make some decisions. And that's where I made that leadership decision. And I led uh, men and women doing opera, uh, Operation Noble Eagle and uh, other numerous um, deployments. And that, that's where I really decided that, hey, this is for me. And um, decided to make that, that career commitment. And if 9-11 hadn't happened, do you think you would have chose to do something else? Chris, you know, we have failure resumes in our life. If 9-11 wouldn't have happened, I probably would have got out. Who knows what trajectory my life would have been on. So sometimes things happen um, that's less fortunate, but then it changes trajectory in uh, other people's lives. And I probably can safely say I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now having this conversation if 9-11 wouldn't have had happened. Some folks in our audience probably aren't familiar with many details about the military and its ranks. So forgive me, but I'm going to steal your thunder right now by saying that I've read that 0.8, yes, 0.8% of active duty personnel and 1% of reserve soldiers earn the rank of command sergeant major. As you mentioned, you had the goal of joining the army at an early age. Was it also a goal to earn that rank of command sergeant major? Uh, I see you doing your homework and you're absolutely right. It is uh, less than 1%. And then if you look at uh, underprivileged groups, we're even less than that. Um, when I first joined the military, uh, ideally I wanted to be a staff sergeant. E6 staff sergeant was the goal, which is uh, your first level of supervision. And um, that's pretty much where it stuck. But um, as I started to lead, as I started developing myself uh, in my leadership positions, um, somehow I came up with making a command sergeant major E9. And, you know, I don't give myself all the credit for that. It's the men and women that I led that really set me up for success, um, following orders. Sometimes we look at a pyramid and you see this command sergeant major sitting on the top and all the people underneath the bottom. Sometimes we, we really need to look and switch that around because without their support throughout all my campaigns and all my missions, um, I wouldn't have made that right. So it, even though it was me by myself, it was a team that helped me get there. And in my wildest dreams, I, I wouldn't have never thought that I would get to that rank. And, and as I mentioned earlier, when we talk about underprivileged groups, me, obviously African-American, I'm actually the first African-American command sergeant major to uh, head up our brigade, which is the 49th MP Brigade. Um, so that tells you how, sm how small that number can be. But that's, you know, I give a lot of credit to a lot of my mentors along the way. Um, one who I specifically got a shout out is uh, General Pelletti, um, Robert, General Robert Pelletti and uh, uh, the Colonel Anthony Bangalore. They was a big, big um, influence in my career. And so influenced, that's how I ended up here. They influenced me, talked to me, coached me, and encouraged me to be part of the uh, USC program, part of the USC family. So I really thank them for taking the time out and giving me that one-on-one coaching and uh, mentorship. And uh, yeah, and here I am now. Spoken like the true humble leader that you are. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We often hear that military service builds character. How does it do that? And in what ways did it help you build character? Wow, you got some pretty good questions there. You know, with the, mil <laughs> with the military, they, they teach you the uh, Army ethos or the Army values. And one of those is providing a selfless service. Um, throughout my character, to help build my character was providing a selfless service. Uh, nothing makes you feel better as a leader then encouraging other people to where they need to be in their growth and development. And that's why I really stand by providing that selfless service to uh, the men and women out there, to our country, to our community, and also to my family. And I uh, thank the military for that uh, instilling that characteristic in me. Also, you also have integrity, honesty, which comes with it, but nothing makes a person feel better than uh, selfless service to uh, those you serve. And certainly one character building experience must have been your assignment in New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. What did that deployment mean to you and how would you rank it among your various deployments over the years? Wow, Chris, you know, you take me back thinking about that. Um, 
New Orleans was was really something, Hurricane Katrina. And I, I ranked that up there as probably number two. And the only reason why I say number two, because my two combat experiences, some of the things that I could talk about in uh, as we go on with the interview, but I ranked that as number two because it was right here on our own soil, watching a community, a city, that's just going immersed, submerged in water, um, just seeing the people with what they had in their hands is all that they had. And when I went down into uh, Katrina, um, I was there by day three, after we got everything all set up by day three. And we, uh, I, I was stationed at the airport and just watching the families with kids, people with dialysis. My mother, she passed away um, because of uh, kidney failure. She was on dialysis. So just seeing the different people with all that they own in their hand, coming up to the airport, um, needing dialysis, trying to get triaged, and just looking at that and just knowing that just because I'm in another city, but this is actually happening right here on U.S. soil. And most other people that showed up, they just wanted to get on an airplane and get out of there. Um, we had to, we had to uh, uh, select who went on what airplanes, where they were going. Some of the people showed up, said, okay, they want to get out of here. Um, we took women and kids said, all right, we got a plane that's leaving. We didn't even know the destination where the plane was going. So imagine you, Chris, with you and your wife, show up to the airport and you got to get on the plane and you don't even know the destination. All you know is you want to get out of there. The most we could tell them is going to Houston or it's going to Atlanta. I don't know. Uh, one going to California. We don't know. You have to get on it. So you got to make a split decision for you and your family at that moment with everything you own in your hand. I mean, just thinking about it just takes me back and, uh, it, it, it took a lot of courage to stand strong and support the people with that, just to put them on a plane, not knowing where they're going. Families broken up right here on U.S. soil, right in the little city of, of uh, New Orleans, which just a few months ago was hosting the Mardi Gras. Um, people hanging out on Bourbon Street, having fun. And now all these people have to make a split decision on where they're going and they don't know the destination unknown. So that was really, really dear to my heart. But I'm I was pretty impressed the way that um, the military handled it, the way that uh, my men and women that served with me, the way they handled everything. We tried to uh, keep everything um, intact, get the people out there as quick, quickly as they can. The ones that needed um, dialysis, we tried to get them over to a triage. But then you have women there with babies with no formula. So little things like that you got to think of. Us working two, three days, um, going without eating, which food was there, female was there, and it was big support. And it's a lot of red tape you got to cut through when those situations happen. We want to just take off, boom, and go, and, and you expect the military to show up. But then we also got to keep it into consideration who's going to pay, where the money's coming from. And I don't, and that's just a whole no, another thing that we got to get into. But we also have to think about having the resources. Uh, lined up because why are we going to drop 200 soldiers in here? We don't know where they're going. We're going to be useless to the people. So we have to make sure everything is set up so that we are, we do add value and we are an asset so that we can help the people as needed. So that's, that's what New Orleans Hurricane Katrina meant to me. I mentioned you were also deployed to Eastern Afghanistan and in Iraq where you, you trained Afghan police and soldiers and Iraqi police. <sighs> What were those experiences like and what similarities and differences did you see in the way that they viewed policing compared to your experiences here at home? Wow, that's a pretty good question. That was a lot that was happening because all this was back to back and I was saying it. Um, I was deployed during the initial invasion to Iraq 2003. Like you said, yes, I was assigned to help train, to assist with training the uh, Iraqi police. And one of the things was a language barrier. So I had to pick up on the language really fast and I had to interpret it, had to push. That was constantly going out with me and my team. We had a team of 10 and we would take them on what you would call like a field training officer type of program where we, we would partner one-on-one -on -one with the uh, Iraqi army. I mean, I'm sorry, the Iraqi uh, police and we would go out into the communities and show them how to enforce laws. But one of the things that was um, kind of challenging some of the things we consider law is not law over there. So a lot of things they go, you have to respect their religion. 
a lot of them are religious laws that they follow that we do not. And then you have to remind yourself, you are American, although on their soil, we're here to support them. So we want to support their rules. So a lot of things that I found that may be legal here in the uh, States was legal there. Some of the things that I found legal here was illegal there. For instance, you uh, you kissing your, kissing your spouse in public, holding hands with someone walking down the street. A lot of those things is um, uncalled for. And if they seen a boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, two young adults, 21, 22, out kissing, uh, that will get you thrown in jail. Um, you had um, you had spouses locked up for because the husband accused them of uh, of um, adultery, and so you had to deal with that. And then just some of the little small things that they didn't have that we take for granted: toilet paper, you know, little things like that. But it was an experience that I would never forget. I enjoyed. The, uh, learning from them, eating with them. I mean, we had MREs. We go three, four days eating MREs, cause, which is a meal ready to eat, already prepared. So, But a few times, hey, um, when the Iraqis really built a love for you and a connection, they wanted you to have child with them, which is tea. You had to sit down and eat with them. They wanted you to, and it was, you really couldn't say no because you had to build that bond. And if they kill a goat right there in front of you and we're going to cook it, be prepared to eat it. So hopefully the stomach is uh, ready to handle it. So <laughs> one of the things I can say, I did uh, I did build up my immune to handle certain things <laughs> that normally I wouldn't. Um, got an opportunity to talk to some of the bath party members. Uh, bath party was a bad thing uh, when we went over there, but some of them were locked up in the uh, Abu Ghraib when I was there. And you would talk to these bath party members and they was fighting for their country the same way we were fighting for ours. And after a while you spend time with them, you start building this uh, relationship with them. But also you don't want to build no Stockholm syndrome and start thinking one way, but really just understanding that they have a political way that they, they do things and they consider us a Western way we do things. And um, just talking about some of the uh, differences that we have with each other. People are always fascinated with what's called the brush with fame. That's when we cross paths with a famous person. You actually had two brushes with fame, one in Afghanistan with one of your military heroes and the other in Iraq with a very well-known broadcast journalist. Give us the details of those two experiences and what they meant to you. Oh, wow. Oh, you really did your homework on me. Um, the biggest one was with Dan Rather. Um, I grew up watching Dan Rather on 60 Minutes with my grandmother all throughout the years. Um, so I was always a fan of his reporting. reporting. Um, when I was in Iraq at Abu Ghraib, uh, we had newscasters coming in and out, news. And one day, lo and behold, uh, Dan Rather showed up. And uh, he actually hung out with us for a few days at one of the uh, traffic control points that we had set up out in front of uh, Abu Ghraib. So I found that very, uh, I found that very uh, interesting that he would be out there with us the whole time. So they actually out there, boots on the ground, right there with us. Had an opportunity to take him on patrol uh, a couple times. Um, got in a, a lengthy conversation with him, just knowing who he was. Um, he was just. Sometimes you see these people on TV and you're thinking one thing, but really interacting with him and him thanking us for our service and what we're doing, but he was right out there with us. It really uh, made me have a different respect for him. And uh, one of the things I did get to tell him was um, how me and my grandmother used to watch him on TV in the younger years, and I would never thought that I would have the opportunity to meet him in the war zone. I mean, you always see him out there uh, covering wars, um, during the desert storm um, and things like that. So never in a million years, I thought I would have that opportunity to see someone that I really admire uh, on television and just to be so down to earth. And I mean, just stand out there in arms way for hours at a time with us to get his story. So that was a uh, very, very fascinating. Um, other ones when I was in Afghanistan, you mentioned Afga uh, Afghanistan. Ah, I gotta say that's my favorite moment because as a military 
uh, military personnel, soldiering. I had the opportunity to meet General um, General Petraeus, uh, David Petraeus. And one of the things with him, he was actually over Iraq in 2003 when we were doing that campaign with that deployment. Now he was in charge of a theater while we were in Afghanistan. So he would come up to where I was located because I was actually out living with the uh, Iraqi army. I'm, I'm sorry, the Afghan police and the Afghan army. So he would come up to where we were stationed at on Matoon Hill and uh, coast Afghanistan. So I had an opportunity to brief him on the situation that was taking place up there. And uh, I was a little, little, uh, little um, starstruck. And he had one of my other favorite reporters with me, with him, uh, Katie Carrier. So she would travel around with him. So just interacting with him, having just the candid conversations, um, watching him on TV. Now he's right here in front of me. I can still remember when uh, Obama, uh, President Obama uh, sent him over to Afghanistan to be the uh, theater commander, not knowing that I would have this uh, opportunity to actually brief him on the situation in coast and what we were doing over there. As a California National Guard, it's just, you don't think about those things. And uh, the conversation we had, it was just, you know, priceless and I cherish that because I always read about it, um, followed his leadership style, a lot of his strategic uh, uh, war planning, I mean, it was just beyond uh, approach. So um, I, I have to say that was a really uh, big moment for me in my life. You spent a lot of time in the, in the field, a lot of time in the classroom. Are leadership skills from the military and police service transferable to the classroom? You know, the military and me working as uh, active chief of police currently right now for the Department of Veterans Affairs Police, um, with that and also being um, my military uh, extensive uh, career, they teach you a lot of leadership, a lot of leadership, a lot of strategic leadership when you get to this level. Also with law enforcement, um, a lot of leadership. And it prepares you for your next steps forward. And with that, when you're in the class, everything that I've gained, my knowledge over the years, I have two options I can do. I can ride off in the sunset, give me a pina colada and sit out on the beaches of Florida, or I can give back to my community. And one of the ways I plan to do that is by being in the classroom with the leadership and everything that I've learned. And it has prepared me to be, uh, to lead from the front, to be that person out front. Um, it assisted, assisted me in just writing skills, in your uh, delivery, your approach, your discipline. So all of that combined has prepared for a life in the classroom. And as I go, the way that I uh, interact with, with my fellow, fellow students, all that is contributed to to the military. So that's how that worked out for me. So I forgot your chief command sergeant major, soon to be Dr. Chief Command Sergeant Major. So I'll, I'll get it right. Yeah, I have a few uh, titles underneath my belt. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you're okay. You're okay now. Your success has clearly made you a role model, role model for many people but your mission is to serve as a role model for a specific group of people. Who are they and why are you committed to their success? You know, the biggest, the biggest thing that I'm focused on, can, can you repeat the question? I'm sorry. Sure. So you're a role model for a lot of people, but there's a specific group of people that you want to help be committed to their success. Yes. Um, I, I, I like to consider myself a role model, but um, I would like to be a role model to everyone, all men and women, but specifically for underprivileged um, men and women, specifically African-American. Um, you know, I don't want to leave any of the other ones out, but I really focus on black and brown because I was one of those young adults, young kids growing up. And, um, and you know, as we try to develop ourselves, we got to understand the importance of mentorship and I'll be honest with you, all my mentors have been white. And 
they have definitely, uh, but it took them to take that time out with me to get to where I have to go. And the only thing they asked me was to pay it forward. And doing that is by being that role model within my community for my people to assist them with getting to the next level. Because like I said earlier, between the ages of, six, of 10 and 16 is where we develop our human development. And it's really important just as under uh, African-American men to be important, to be an uh, active role model in our youth, uh, the next generation's uh, life. Because it really, uh, it really plays an important role because a lot of times we want to take we want to take on occupations or we want to take on careers and how do we get there if they don't see enough representation of us that look like me they may think that they can't get there they don't know how to get there i mean you uh chris had talked extensively about this i mean you can only go so far with you and i that you can teach me or i could teach you but sometimes you need to bridge that gap when we think about the gap analysis, how do you bridge that gap? Sometimes you want to feel comfortable talking to somebody that looks like you. I want to be comfortable with talking to somebody that looks like me. And the reason being, because it may be personal things that you may not uh, relate to. You can understand being a friend. You understand as a human, you can have compassion for me. But certain things, um, you just need that person that reminds you of you that you can share that with. So my goal is to really push that uh, agenda within the uh, within the community of uh, black and brown. Maybe. Command Sergeant Major Andreas Williams, we're out of time. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks to our listeners. We'll see you same time, same place next Tuesday. Until then, keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.